3: The Michael Reid Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
4: Thursday morning, the 11th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Ireland will not allow Brexit to drag us out of the single market. Most people said, what? What? Like, what are you on about when the thornish Simon Coveney raised the prospect of how the consequences of Brexit could be that we're leaving the European Union? No, 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 we're not leaving the EU, we're not leaving the single market and we're not leaving the customs union. Minister Coveney also explained how Northern Ireland would remain in the United Kingdom, how Ireland will insist on a backstop for Northern Ireland and if the United Kingdom doesn't accept that, there will be a no-deal Brexit. No deal, Simon Coveney says, will result in goods being checked going east-west and north-south, but not border checks. Checks somewhere somehow, how, but how? How is uh, the question that nobody, including the Thornish, is able to answer at the moment? We'll discuss that now with uh, the Minister for European Affairs, Helen McEntee, who's a Fine Gael TD in East. Obviously, before uh, we uh, get down to what is a very important uh, subject, uh, I know that uh, you want to pay tribute uh, to Oliver Tully, who passed away.
5: Absolutely. And good morning, Michael. And just um, I want to take the opportunity just to offer my condolences to his family, to his friends but to his colleagues as well past and present. I know he's somebody who is very well liked and and has worked extremely hard all his life and and represented uh, his constituents so I was very sad to see her hear of his passing and just to to offer my deepest condolences.
4: Still hard to believe. Uh, Very very sudden and very sad as you say and condolences to Eileen and to the family once again. Thanks for coming in to us uh, this morning Minister as I say there is this big question of how do you do the impossible?
5: well and uh, and it's something that we don't have a full answer for yet and and mm. that's why when when Simon was on yesterday or the Thursday he's not able to give you a full answer because it's still been worked through mm. um the document which was published two days now uh two days ago um which outlines really the possible implications if in 112 days the UK decide to leave without a deal without ratifying the withdrawal agreement which they worked on themselves and and helped to put in place over two and a half years then we will find ourselves in probably one of the most difficult situations as a company or Mm. as a country uh, as an economy and and trying to deal with as you've just outlined the most complex of issue Mm. how do we ensure that we protect the good friday agreement linked with that the invisible border that currently exists but how do we make sure that our place as part of the European Union no, and no as solution. part of the single markets. I mean,
4: market. the, 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 this is part of the game plan in trying to force an election in the United Kingdom and that is the expectation or at least the hope of the Irish government, is it not?
5: No, uh, and we're not trying to force anything. I mean, the way that we see it and the way that I see it is mm. we actually have a solution here and if you look at the two representatives you, you that are going have a problem with
4: respect, Minister, if you insist on the backstop which is aimed at preventing a hard border, you'll result... In a hard border.
5: But we're not insisting on something that hasn't already been agreed to. And both gentlemen who are running for the position of Prime Minister were in the Cabinet when that was approved. So what we're asking is now that what was agreed, what was negotiated, a lot of what was asked for by the UK, mm. and, I, and I absolutely take into account it hasn't been ratified. Yeah, but but if after. you to cause a hard border, aren't you? But if after, no. And, well, and that's to cause not an our intention. It's it's not up to us whether there's an election in the UK or not. What we want to do and what we've been trying to do is to protect the Good Friday Agreement, to protect Mm. the all-island economy and essentially to protect life as it currently is for people. And I think what we've seen, particularly in the past 20 years, when it comes to the progress that has been made, there's not one person I've met north or south of the border that wants to reverse or go back on any of that progress. And what we feel we've done with... The withdrawal agreement as part of the, the overall negotiations mm. and the backstop and this is through negotiations with the UK is find a way to square that circle as, as I've used that phrase this week. In the absence of a deal you're not expecting cooperation or, or you can't expect cooperation mm. because obviously the UK would become a third country and yes it, it, it ends up that our all island economy, that our uh, businesses that are sectors that are industries are going to be hugely and negatively impacted, and, and we saw the report. I think it was pretty stark in saying we're looking at possibly between fifty 000 and sixty thousand job losses. Mm. We're talking about a huge forty thousand in Northern growth. Ireland. Mm. Exactly, yeah, and, yeah, and, and it's and incredible. Really I mean, the, the point that we have to make: our trade to Northern Ireland is one percent mm. for overall. You exports. can't you can't you allow a pay. hard border. Well, I mean, And you're
4: about to create one. But one of the reasons you said there that it won't happen is because of the trust that you have with the two men who are hoping to become the next British Prime Minister. I, I think it's clear this morning that the Irish government has no trust in either Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt. Uh, they're not genuine.
5: Well, first of all, I, I would absolutely reject that we are causing a hard border. Firstly, Brexit. Is Do you believe a,
4: that they are genuine?
5: Brexit is a UK decision. Well, you've, you've asked me two questions mm-hmm. here. Brexit is a UK decision. They voted to leave and we respect that. They have put down red lines, but they have also made commitments to us. They have made commitments to people in Northern Ireland and they have made commitments to the EU. And all that we are asking is that those commitments that they've signed off and that they've agreed to, that they fulfil those. So Mm. we're not But you
4: don't trust them. I mean you don't see them as genuine people. They're disingenuous. That's front page of the Irish Times this morning.
5: Well, that's not my words and no, I wouldn't Simon say... No, Simon Cobley's words. No, no, that's not the case at all. Um, what's been reported in the paper is An a report... An utterly
4: dis- disingenuous debate.
5: ...is a report from a private meeting and what I have to say about those meetings, mm. they've been taking place. No, and it, It's important to say this. For two and a half years now, we're not just myself, uh, the Thánaiste, but members from other political parties, from Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin, Labour, Green Party and members from all stakeholders have for the past two and a half years had a space to engage and to discuss Mm. the various different concerns. It's a private meeting it might be a
4: private meeting, but I'm reading on the front of the Irish Times uh, this morning that uh, the tonnage to uh, Simon Coveney has said uh, that uh, the Hunt-Johnson debate to become the next leader of uh, the Conservative Party and consequently the British Prime Minister is an utterly disingenuous debate from people who should know better.
5: And again, I'm saying it's a report from what was a private meeting and it's not mm. for me or anybody no, to comment on meeting. And it's a report, mm, not mm. from anybody, not from somebody specific, not having been confirmed by anybody. So mm. a private meeting, it's a two-way flow of information. And I think it's not mm. appropriate in a forum that has been operating for two and a half years for anybody to comment on what may report, or may not it? have been from said. From
4: Kelly and Pat I think it's a, a fairly credible report, is it not?
5: I'm not saying... Mm. Anything about FIAC or I'm not saying anything about past. What I'm saying is this is a private forum where for two and a half years, mm. members of the IFA, yeah. members of the education and, boards, and, well, members well, what, of the political parties. With, with
4: respect to you, Minister, what you're saying is that when the minister said this, Simon Coveney, the Taoiseach, didn't expect it to be on the front page of the Irish Times, that he, he felt that the debate was utterly disingenuous.
5: That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is this is a private forum mm. and it's a two-way flow of information. Well,
4: you're not saying he didn't say it.
5: I'm not saying anything mm. about it and, mm. and I'm not going to comment if somebody had made a reference to something that somebody mm. from the Irish exporters had mm. said or Lisa- that somebody from the IFA had said. I wouldn't comment on Lisa Chambers at the private same
4: private meeting wanted to know if we're going to have uh, uh, enough members of uh, the Defence Forces to police the border. Is that yeah. something you want to comment on? No, it's
5: well, not. It's something, something that I that asked that I you about
4: a long on. time ago. And since uh, this whole debate started, whatever it was, three years ago plus, uh, you've been saying that we can't countenance the idea of a hard border. It seems as though here we are this morning countenancing the idea of a hard border.
5: No, we're not. Um, we're not in any way countenancing the idea of a hard border. And what we've consistently said and what was said yesterday and the day before when we launched uh, the most up-to-date series of... I suppose what we have done as a contingency, but what we see as being done in the next six months mm. in the possibility of a hard Brexit is that we won't allow a hard border, that we won't allow any infrastructure or checks or associated checks we count on no or near the border. What we've said is that we need to find mm. a way to protect the single market, our single market, and we have to be very clear, mm. we are an island nation, we are a trading nation, and if we are not part of the single market, mm. it has never mind, I suppose... An, an, I won't even use that phrase what we're talking about the damages of a no deal that would be tenfold Mm. if we were to leave the single market and the implications for business and sector so we have to find a way to protect that but we have to find a way to protect the invisible border that currently exists Mm. and that's not just us saying it that's the EU saying it that's the Commission saying it and that's indeed Politicians in in the UK saying that if, well. if
4: Northern Ireland is out of the European Union, if Northern Ireland isn't in the single market or the customs union in three and a half months from now, uh, will there have to be a, a border of some sort on this island, or can part of the European Union be without a border?
5: Well, what we've said, and, and again, my previous point is that we need to prevent any reemergence of a border, but we need mm. to protect our markets. Um, what you would find quite quickly, and, and when I made reference earlier that 1% of our exports go to Northern Ireland, 30% of their exports come to us. And what you would find very quickly mm. is a huge amount of what is now north-south trade across that invisible border essentially disappearing in a very short space of time because you're talking about taking away the idea of even borders, you're talking about tariffs, you're talking about particularly on agricultural uh, products, Mm. huge tariffs that we we have no control over or no say and that in itself would cause absolute disruption to so many businesses. Mm. So you know you have to look at that first and foremost and the impact that that would cause and, and I cannot say enough and you know, people unfortunately um, may not realise that this will impact Northern Ireland more than anybody in Mm. all of this. Uh, Um, But what we need to do then is make sure that if there are products coming from Rosslare Harbour Mm. to Dover or Calais or beyond, if they're going through the land bridge, which the UK have said even in a no deal, there would be a mechanism through which Irish trucks or hauliers could travel through, albeit I would say there would be huge delays. There has to be a way for our Colleagues on mainland Europe to be able to say these products are not contaminated. These products uh, have and mm. come through the same standards, the regulations, mm. labour. They pay the
4: duty, rules, the rules, regulations, so standards, and so on have all that. been met. Uh, and yeah. when the president-elect of the European Commission Ursula von der Leyen uh, says she fully supports uh, the backstop and that it has to happen, does she realise? Do you think that that means if? It doesn't happen. There'll be a hard border.
5: Well, no, I, I think she's very much aware, um, as his the Chancellor, um, who she is obviously of the same party and has worked with since uh, Angela Merkel has been Chancellor. Mm. She's the only person who has. Um, we've just had a delegation of 40-plus uh, CSU parliamentarians in Ireland mm. for the entire week. We have constant flow of people yeah. coming either from business or from political parties next week. My French colleague is coming to Ireland yeah. travelling to the border. So I mean there is a constant flow of information between me and my colleagues but also business yeah. and industries and sectors. But what everybody is clear on is that there has to be a solution to this. There has to but be, what's but, but clear but is what that it would be
4: It's impossible to reach a solution. And what is clear to some extent, at least, is that the German Defence Minister, von der Leyen, will become the Commissioner and will want to be the European Commissioner for the European Army, and that in response to her support for... The backstop, she'll be hoping that the Irish will sign up to a European army. Uh, And if there isn't a backstop, that there'll have to be a border. Uh, And if there isn't a border, well, then Ireland is going to have to leave the European Union.
5: Well, I think that's a lot of ifs. But yeah. then maybes. I, mm-hmm. I think that's about 10 steps of a process um, where we haven't even concluded the first one. And obviously she has to be approved. I'm assuming that will happen. And I have no reason to believe otherwise. She has been Minister for Defence. So mm. obviously her focus has been on that area. And as we know, there are very different views. As we know, our view in terms of any kind of an EU army or Ireland being mm. part of anything as such is not something we would no, accept. I don't think we
4: know that at all, no. no. Well, mm, I,
5: I, I do. Mm. I've spent the past year travelling around the country mm. and asking people what no, kind just of a Europe do they want. we signed up to a European
4: uh, battle group, haven't we? Uh,
5: no, we haven't. We've signed up to PESCO and the first no, two programmes... No, we've programs signed up as to a European of, battle group. No, it's mm. not a European battle group, and I don't believe it is. The first two projects that we have... No, separate to we PESCO, we've
4: signed up to a European battle group. Uh, and we've also uh, signed up uh, to a, a UN peace-enforcing mission uh, in Mali
5: anything that we have done and yes this mm. is something which has been deliberated the troops yeah. that are being relocated it's probably for about 2 years it's mm. on a 4 month basis it's working with mm. other troops on peacekeeping missions mm. and that's something that we have done since we joined the mm. un and have had troops on the ground every day since then it's something that went through a triple lock system uh, in our parliament that is there that has mm. part of has been part of the, the signing of our uh, or us signing the treaty as part of uh, members of the European Union and that won't change unless people ask us to change it and Mm. and from my conversations travelling the country last year I'd say 1% of people think that should be changed. Mm. In saying that, uh, our discussion around PESCO, the two programmes that we have joined with PESCO, one is on maritime surveillance, and that's something which mm. is about cooperation, it's about working with other member states. The second is about sharing information, sharing training, abilities, sh- sharing mm. equipment, but not in any way moving in that direction. And, you know, we've seen yeah. in the past other commissioners who perhaps have a particular view on that. Hmm. They haven't well, advanced the, it, they haven't forced it on well, anybody. The, the, and, the, the, and this particular
4: commissioner, uh, this. Uh, the incoming uh, president, uh, has a, a very strong view and would be very supportive of uh, the idea of a European army and uh, may uh, decide to, uh, to make that part of uh, the terms and conditions of the support that we enjoy for Europe. But one thing that she appears to be looking for now is a second nomination as Ireland's next commissioner. Uh, the government has nominated Phil Hogan. Uh, would you like to be the second nominee?
5: Could I come back on maybe the, the previous comments that you've made? Because it's not really within the power of the commissioner to dictate what happens in terms of Brexit. Michel Barnier is the chief negotiator. Uh, his team are those mm. the ones who are negotiating. But it is the European Council that actually decides and that votes on uh, we have the full support it's the the, the council that the Taoiseach attends and even though there have been changes there have been elections we have a number of new prime ministers there has never been any changing or wavering of support but most importantly it has not been conditional and i think if you start to put condition on support for a member state in comparison to a country that's leaving It's it's a very dangerous precedent for other smaller member states or any member state. Let's talk about the other issue because President-elect
4: von der Leyen would like to see a female nominee, a second nominee, uh, and that that would be uh, a female candidate. Would Helen McEntee like to be the nominee?
5: Helen McEntee likes her job, um, and I, I like what I'm doing at the moment and I'm very happy to be doing the work that I'm doing. So, no, it's not something that I would be looking to, to be put forward for. Um, I think it's appropriate that she wants to get a good balance and that she wants a 50-50 gender balance within the commission. Um, I have only heard of this last night now, unfortunately, that this is the case and, and obviously we'll see how that transpires. Um, but it is, You know, and I want to wish Phil Hogan well if he is reappointed, and I hope he is, because I think he's done a very good job in the past five years. Um, I think it's appropriate that we have a balance, and the new commission and the new team that we have certainly has that with uh, Ursula von der Leyen as commission president, um, with our new uh, head of the ECB, and then obviously. this is the first time we've seen either of those positions go to women. So I think it's it's, it's very positive and, and at the but moment, it's not something that I would be considering or, or asking to be put forward. For. If,
4: if the Irish heed the call and make a second nomination uh, on the basis that we need to propose at least one female candidate, uh, Helen McEntee would have to be a contender, would she not?
5: Again, that's something that's completely up to the Taoiseach, Um, but it's not something I've I've put my name forward for. As I've said, I think at the moment, given what we're working on, uh, and given the complexities of where we are with Brexit, my place is at home, and and that's what I'm focused on.
4: Okay, but did you turn down the opportunity?
5: That's not something that's even been put before me, Michael. But no, it's not something that I'll I take that I, as I a no. S- you wouldn't. No, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, no, it's it's mm. not something that I would consider. I'm very much focused on on what I'm doing at the moment.
4: Okay, well, there's uh, Uh, A lot ahead in uh, the coming three and a half months, it it would seem. Uh, Best odds uh, on a British election or a a crash out? Because at this stage, it seems like it's one or the other, does it not?
5: I I think there's a number of options. I think there's still, and again, without getting into UK politics Mm -hmm. much, I think there's still a very clear majority of people who do not want... A no deal scenario, um, mm. what that means and what that implies in terms of the arithmetic uh, of the House of Commons. Obviously, we have to wait and see mm. who the next Prime Minister is. We can all assume or guess mm. who we think. Well, Boris right Johnson
4: way. sort of has indicated that there'll be an election, but under Johnson or Hunt, uh, it will be a, a no deal Brexit. It would seem, or else an election. Would you accept that?
5: No, because yeah. I, I think things have changed, and things have changed when it comes to this overnight. We have seen agreements being reached, we have seen uh, approvals, we have seen uh, the following day changes being made. So, you know, I, I think it's very hard to predict. The only thing that we can do in uh, taking away the guessing game is preparing as much as we can, and, and that's what that document this week is about. If I could maybe, and, and I've been at a number of different events, and we've hosted a number of different events in Meath, but the document very clearly outlines that there is about seventy to 80,000 businesses that do business with the UK, mm. um, some of it more regularly than others, between about 30 and 40 of those on a weekly basis. There are others who maybe might do it on a monthly, mm. bi monthly basis. Time is running out to prepare. Time it. is running out. There's a huge amount of people who haven't gotten their EO or I ni- number. It's through revenue, it allows them to trade, taking away all the possibilities of tariffs and everything else to engage with revenue, they will receive another letter and they'll also receive Mm. a phone call over the summer to do that because it really doesn't cost anything, it doesn't take any time and it just means that if... And you won't be able to trade without it. You won't be able to mm. trade without it Mm. and if we come to the week before the 31st of October and and find Mm. ourselves in the worst case scenario 30,000 people trying to apply for us is not going to, to be a good okay. good place to be. So just to encourage people to, to engage with us,
4: Minister, thank you very much indeed, thank and uh, thank you for joining us uh, for that matter. That's uh, Minister for European Affairs Helen McEntee, who's a Fine Gael TD for Meath East.
5: Michael, Michael Reid on, on
4: LMFM. Now, I suppose there's many reasons uh, to be worried about uh, getting cancer, but being able to afford your illness is quite obviously, it would seem from statistics being put forward by the Irish Cancer Society, a very real reason to be concerned. Costs of up to €1,200 euro, uh, a month. The government uh, should reduce uh, the financial strain on cancer patients, according uh, to the Irish Cancer Society, in its pre-budget Submission. Donald Buggy, head of services uh, for the Cancer Society, is on the line. Good morning, Donald, and thanks for joining us. Uh, why would it cost up to twelve hundred euro a month? Where is that money going for some cancer patients?
6: Yes, yeah, so we we met with a, a significant range of politicians from right around the country yesterday to talk to them about our, our pre-budget submission, and uh, one part of that is, is we're asking for the government to do something in, in relation to reducing the charges. For cancer patients that they have control of. So, you know, when you get a cancer diagnosis, the first thing that you think about is, you know, the, the treatment, the survival, you know, what the options are. But very quickly as you get into it, you realize that cancer can be a costly business. So that's things like, you know, even getting to and from hospital, parking at hospital, um, every time you attend for a chemotherapy appointment. Um, if you don't have a medical card or you don't have private medical insurance, you pay a fee of eighty euro up to eight hundred euro per year. You'll also need additional drugs and creams and, uh, and uh, you know the drugs payment scheme is another uh, is another cost, so that's up to one hundred and twenty four euros per month. You can claim back, but your costs mm. tend to be significantly above that. So these are all things that we're asking the government for. They have control over some of these costs to do
4: something about them and uh, i suppose depending on uh, the stage of uh, the cancer beyond different drugs and many different drugs uh, and they can be quite expensive uh, for uh, these drugs uh, to treat your disease uh, you pay uh, anything over 124 euro a, a month because of uh, the drugs payment scheme threshold what should that be reduced to if uh, people are to see- receive real assistance
6: so we are looking for the thresholds to be reduced to 100 euro for families and 72 euro for individual people. And those are rates that prevailed at the time pre-crisis before we had our recession. And, you know, during the recession we saw a range of charges increased on the, on the individual and away from the state. And we're looking for a rollback in those now to ensure that you know, When you have a okay. cancer diagnosis that you can focus on you know, being well, focus on your treatment, focus on getting better rather than having to be concerned about the cost of your cancer at a time when a lot of people will reduce their hours at work mm. or if you're self-employed, God forbid, that you would have to get somebody in to, uh, to take over your work and take over your business.
4: Okay, and so but- there,
6: are, uh, you know, there are costs rising up for people at a time when their income is reducing.
4: Okay, and would save people, what, €24 a month or around €300 over the course of a year. year, Still not an awful lot of money. Uh, You mentioned uh, about €800, a maximum of €800 for uh, some of uh, the procedures, such as chemotherapy and that sort of uh, thing. Uh, That's for people who don't have a a medical card or don't have private health insurance. So uh, these are what quite often would be referred to as the working poor, are they?
6: They are, or, or the squeeze middle, or whatever, whatever the latest term is. You know, we're talking about 20% of people who who don't uh, who who earn just enough that they don't qualify for a medical card, but don't earn enough to be able to pay the significant fees as they are for uh, private medical insurance. And these charges of, of of 80 euro per visit, up to 800 euro per year. But, you know, if you were diagnosed with a cancer in September mm. and, you, and you had treatments over uh, October to March, you would get two years of payment. So it could be 1600 euro. Again, you know, these are significant costs for mm. cancer patients and significant costs for people who are in that group who are very, very little um, who have very, very little disposable
4: income. Okay, and given the benefit of uh, the medical card do you sometimes hear from people who are working who don't have private health insurance who tell you that uh, it uh, isn't worth their while working that uh, it would be in their interest financially to give up work because of their medical expenses?
6: Well, I I think that's not something that that we would particularly track um, or or, or comment on, but what we would certainly say is that when you have a medical card, it it gets you access to services um, such as as, as physiotherapy, Mm. um, such as occupational therapies that you might need as a cancer patient that otherwise you have to pay for, so it isn't... You know it, it isn't just the, the free services that, that you get is access to additional services that you that you may need or that may provide you with and as so a better quality of life during your cancer treatment and after your cancer treatment so um, the provision of, of medical cards for cancer patients is, is certainly something that we we very much support
4: okay. We'll leave there for the moment and uh, thanks uh, for joining us as always on uh, the programme this morning. Donald Buggy, Head of Services with uh, the Irish Cancer Society.
5: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. On LMFM
4: farming groups from across Europe are meeting to find ways to block the Mercosur deal. Irish farmers have been protesting outside of Leinster House, hoping to block the Mercosur deal. The Mercosur deal has been the subject of endless hours of debate in the Dáil over the last couple of days, including a motion last night to block the Mercosur deal, and it was raised at leaders' questions. The Thie- Shockley of Radker spoke about the Mercosur deal uh, and explained to TDs that there is no deal.
7: There is no trade deal agreed. Uh, after 20 years of negotiations um, led by various people along the way but in this, on this occasion led by Commissioner Malmström of the, of the Aldi Group uh, there is now a political agreement uh, between the European Commission uh, and Mercosur uh, in relation to a future trade deal. It will now be two years. There will be a two-year process where, whereby that 17-page document is turned into a legal agreement about this size. It will then go to the Trade Council, most likely for a vote uh, under QMV. And as I've said before, if it is the case that this uh, trade deal is not in Ireland's interest, well, then we will not hesitate to vote against it. But we will actually need to see the deal, uh, the full legal agreement, and we'll also need to do a full economic and environmental assessment of it. Because while there is no doubt that there, that there, are, that there are serious downsides in this uh, for a beef industry, there may also be upsides too in the dairy sector, in the drink sector, for SMEs, for industry, for manufacturing, uh, for lots of other parts of our economy. And as any responsible government has to wait to actually see what the agreement is, Uh, and then to examine it in the round.
4: Joe Healy, the president of uh, the Irish Farmers Association, joins us now. Very good morning to you, Joe. Thanks uh, for joining us uh, on the line from Europe, where you're meeting with other farming organisations, as I understand it. Uh, There's been uh, some significant concern about uh, the position the Irish government has taken in relation to Mercosur. Did the Taoiseach clear that up for you yesterday?
0: Um, Not really. Um, Well, look, we were in Brussels all day yesterday. I'm just back this morning um, for the, I have to head to Wexford to the Banu Agricultural Show. But um, we were meeting with farm organisations from right across Europe, France, Poland, um, Belgium, and a number of other countries as well. We also met with uh, Mairead McGuinness and Matt Carty in the European Parliament and highlighted to them and I suppose uh, when we met the farm organizations it was to highlight what can we do um you know what are our strong arguments i think a number of our strong arguments are the number one the fact that brexit is so up in the air that we're more likely uh, have no deal now than we ever were over the past 3 years and um that if that no deal happens, the European Union will go from 102% self-sufficiency in beef up to 116% self-sufficiency. And that could see a situation where there would be 1 million tonnes of surplus beef uh, on the European Union market. This 99,000 tonnes that's in the Mercosur deal would be equivalent to 10% of that, and that's significant. But apart from that altogether, there are so many boxes that this Mercosur deal and the beef produced in, in the Mercosur countries, which includes Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay and Uruguay, but they fail to take that we have to take here. For example, uh, to put it very simply, if we were producing food similar to what they're producing in some of those countries, it would be illegal for us to put that food on the shelf. So what we're looking for here is a level playing pitch. Mm. And speaking of pitches, The BBC programme the other night highlighted the fact that there's the equivalent of a football pitch every minute being destroyed in the Amazon rainforest to put into beef production.
4: But that's not going to happen in future. I mean, that's part of this deal uh, that the South American countries live up to their commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement uh, in terms of uh, the food safety standards. They'll have to meet European food safety standards, the same environmental standards that is expected of Irish farmers, and uh, the same traceability standards. Uh, And if that doesn't happen, their beef won't be accepted. At present, we're already accepting 247,000 tonnes of South American beef.
0: Yeah and another thing that has slipped in under the radar is that 61,000 tonnes of that carries a 20% tariff and that 20% tariff is to be removed in this Mercosur trade deal but that has slipped in and very few have noticed it but just going back there to uh, what you say about that they have to produce to a standard and that they have Mm. signed up to the Paris Accord we don't trust and we don't take the commitments and it's one thing the President of IFA is saying that but when you have the Food and Veterinary Office the European Commission's Food and Veterinary Office which incidentally is based here in Ireland and one of their, their latest reports uh, you know, onto the, on the Mercosur countries they have three or four damning indictments of mm. the Mercosur countries and one of them is that the competent Brazilian authorities are not in a position to guarantee the relevant export requirements of their beef.
4: Would you like them to be? Hmm? Would you well, like
0: the... I, I I'd like a level playing pitch and yes. I'd like we, we to be able to trust the information that we get from any country. Okay, so is this not an opportunity to,
4: to do that? Because as no, the Taoiseach it, said, we don't have a deal, we don't, we don't have an agreement. What there is is a political agreement uh, which would require all of that to happen over the next couple of years.
0: Yeah, but if one of the other comments from the Food and Veterinary Office was that a lot of the issues uh, and problems that they were raising with the Mercosur countries doing that report was already raised with those countries in in previous reports and over years gone by and they hadn't done anything about them. So we have no nothing to hang our hat, to, hat on to say when well, we accept what they say now is to be accurate. And just remember mm. that when the weak flesh issue broke, it wasn't the authorities in Brazil or the authorities in the European Union that highlighted it, it was elsewhere. So they weren't, you know, they... If you'd expect one authority to be upfront and honest with another, they weren't at that time, and we have seen nothing since to make us believe that anything different would happen in the future.
4: Okay, but if you're...
0: If you go go to the environment, you know, we're being asked to do so much. Uh, 87% of all the measures we have in the Capital Development Fund involve climate mitigating Mm -hmm. actions. To produce a kilo of beef in Ireland, we produce 19 kilos of CO2 to produce a kilo of beef in the in Brazil it takes 80 kilos of CO2 so it's hypocrisy at the highest level when we talk about the environment from the European Commission. OK, but if
4: you're talking about food safety standards and traceability standards uh, and so on, and you're citing evidence uh, from the veterinary office in Grange County, Mead, for not allowing this beef into Ireland, well then, surely, like uh, the Commissioner, Phil Hogan, you agree that they are well capable of policing this, and if they say that it's not meeting those standards, well then, that beef won't be accepted and the deal won't be struck.
0: Well, that's what we want to make sure happens uh, because we don't believe like, for example, every farmer that's listened to your programme this morning and that's a lot of them, they have to have um, that includes myself uh, calves tagged within seven days of birth. They have to be registered with the Department of Agriculture um, within a further 20 days. In Brazil no matter what age the animal is slaughtered at, they, they only have to be tagged within 90 days of slaughter. So if they're it could be over 2 years it could be over 3 years old by the time they're tied how do we know where those animals uh, originate from and you know with with different diseases in some of those countries and with 230 million cattle in brazil compared to our 7 million odd cattle here in this country you know our traceability our food standards Our environmental standards are so much higher and and they have to be because the meat and the food we produce won't be accepted if we don't tick all those boxes. So it's very annoying, very disappointing and extremely frustrating for Irish farmers to see countries where the restrictions and the controls are so loose and so loosely adopted Um, that we will have to compete with those in the future.
4: Joe, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Joe Healy is uh, the President of the IFA the Irish Farmers Association.
5: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM.
4: Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning, Hugh Marie.
8: Good morning, Michael. And good morning to everybody listening in. Michael rang in. He was listening in to your interview with Minister Helen McEntee at the top of the programme in relation to mm, Brexit. And
4: what the Commissioner had to say.
8: And Michael's not happy.
4: Oh, OK. yeah.
8: Just because he feels that the government making the decision and he speaks about of Radker and the ministers. He feels that they know very little as to what's happening outside of Dublin. Mm. That they're very Dublin orientated. Right. And he says they're talking about having to prepare for a hard Brexit. He says he lives in the south but lives uh, on the border and crosses every day. He's a lot of relations living in the north and feels that perhaps uh, the Taoiseach should come down and live there for a while to realise that there never should or could be a hard border in Ireland ever again. That a hard border would never be recognised. It just cannot happen. He says the people of Northern Ireland don't want a border either. They voted to stay in the EU. Mm. It's fine for those in Dublin. That's where all the decisions are being made. But it just cannot happen and that's what they have to tell Britain. And
4: why is he uh, uh, upset with the Minister or the Ministers or the Taoiseach because they're all saying there won't be a hard border.
8: Well obviously he he doesn't um, agree with them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because mm. the worry from those who are ringing in this mm. morning is that it's looking increasingly likely, Michael, because where is think? it going to mm. be? Yeah. Well, mm. sh- I'll give you a flavour yeah. of them. Yeah. Seamus from yeah. Dundalk yeah. yeah. says, here we are, Michael, mm. and the threat of a hard border still looms. And with the mm. way things are in the UK presently, it really is looking increasingly likely. If the, e- if the UK crashes out without a deal... I cannot see how we are going to avoid it worry, and Seamus is worried about yeah,
4: that. Yeah, Well, I suppose there are some ways we can uh, avoid it. We can change our, our mind about the backstop. That's one thing. as yes. if they crash out without yes. a, a deal. Uh, and uh, we can come to some arrangement uh, because uh, we're only talking about them leaving uh, and then coming to an agreement on how they will trade with the rest of Europe over the next couple of years. That backstop is being inserted before that agreement mm. is reached. Uh, so I guess that's a possibility if they find a, a way around that, uh, or they can continue Continue to stick to their guns uh, and say, no, no deal unless there is a backstop. If they do that, well, then it's up to the United Kingdom and uh, they might blink and Mm. they might say well look give us a little bit more time let's put this back to the people one way or another either through another referendum or through an election or through both
8: So what you're saying then Mm. if I'm getting you right is that the backstop Mm. the the thing that we thought would be the protection of us Mm. in the case of a no deal Brexit could actually cause us more damage Well
4: no Uh, no. the 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 insistence of having a backstop could result in a border so Yes. yes but no you see uh, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Isn't, it
8: isn't black or white is mm. it really
4: now well if you're insisting that there has to be a backstop if you want a deal yes. uh, well then it's up to the United Kingdom to say okay we'll do a deal and include a backstop yes. but if they say no we can't accept the backstop yes. that means no deal no deal means a border Okay. At, at least as we understand it at this stage, I don't know what the politicians are talking about, uh, but they are talking about something that they're not telling us about. As Simon Covey said on the programme say, look, I can't tell you about it. There are mm. some things we're looking at. Mm. Uh, we're not going to negotiate in the airwaves and all that, but uh, we're going to try and find a, a way of policing all of this, if you like, without a hard border, without customs posts and so on.
8: So Ireland would have, would have to have faith in the, e, in the UK that if we agreed to do away with the backstop, that they would give a deal that we'd be happy with.
4: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think the Irish I am already going through yeah, this in my yeah, mind yeah, myself yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, people are so yeah, confused yeah, yeah. by it all mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. yeah because yeah.
8: there is... I mean, I know at the time mm. when I was going out and asking people about the mm. backstop, that's what people felt the backstop was. Yeah,
4: well, I think what might happen, let's say, in the circumstance of uh, no deal, uh, well, then there'll have to be a border or mm. the European Union will say... There'll have to be a border uh, because we have to have a a border. I mean, the Germans will say we have to have a border. The French will say we have to have a border. We can't just have anybody coming in and out of the European Union because if you come into Dundalk, you're coming into Germany, essentially in terms of trade. So the European Union will say, look, we'll have to have a border or you'll have to drop the backstop.
8: Yes. So, Tom says that we may as well enjoy ourselves for mm. the next few months, Michael, mm. because once Brexit kicks in without a deal, as, in, as is looking likely, it's going to be, as he says, mm. a disaster for Ireland, with the government predicting huge job losses this week. I feel very sorry for farmers in particular, who I feel will be badly hit, and also businesses in border towns. Mm. Michelle phoned in to say that this week we've seen job losses in Coke in Drogheda, a company that's making money, which is a huge blow to the town. And there doesn't seem to be any big response from the government to this. There are very few jobs based in Drogheda as it is. And now when you hear of the possible impact of a no deal Brexit, People are getting worried," mm, says Michelle.
4: "Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, I think uh, the government set out to focus minds uh, this week, and uh, they certainly got the attention of a lot of people.
8: But I suppose if they didn't do that, Michael, you know, they'd be oh, accused they, of doing yeah. nothing.
4: You'd be damned if you do, yes, and damned if you don't, yes. type of thing. Yeah, absolutely.
8: Moving on, then we've some comments in mm. relation to the Cancer Society, Cancer Society, mm. and it's
5: it's that time of the year.
8: Pre uh, budget submission. Uh, Siobhan says Michael, if someone has cancer, they shouldn't have to deal with the stress of finance. People with long term illnesses should be given free health. Care end of awful that people are fretting over money instead of focusing on getting better.
4: Yeah, and you would be fretting over money when it's so much money if it's up to twelve hundred a month. Yeah,
8: I know. I was mm. shocked by that yeah. figure myself. Mm. Medical card says Jim should be automatically given to people with cancer. The whole system needs to be looked at. Timmy says that when you're sick in Ireland, you have to fight for everything. It starts off fighting for a hospital bed. Then you're looking for a parking space. If you're getting treatment, mm. you're trying to find the cheapest spot. Equipment, if you have walking difficulties, nothing is made easy. And when you can't work and you are racking up bills, it is enormously stressful, okay. says
4: Well, we're coming to the end of uh, the current political term. The doll goes into recess today, and uh, the summer holidays kick in from uh, tomorrow. And it has uh, been a, a dramatic. Uh, last couple of weeks uh, so many different issues uh, that have raised their heads but as is quite often the case it's the ones uh, that you don't expect that quite often get uh, the most traction and last week Leo Vradger, the Taoiseach offended quite a few people in the doll when he made these comments responding to the leader of the Fianna Fáil party, Micheál Martin
7: I'm always um, amused and bemused that Deputy Martin likes to accuse me of being Uh, partisan and personal yet uh, as is evidenced by his his, his name calling today uh, he's very capable of being um partisan and personalised himself um, he kind of reminds me of one of those parish priests who preaches from the altar telling us uh, to avoid sin while uh, secretly going behind the altar and engaging in um, any, any amount of sin himself.
4: Right and uh, those comments uh, didn't go unnoticed and uh, the Taoiseach came uh, under a, a lot of fire, there was a, a lot of criticism and indeed uh, there was even some criticism from priests and clergy about being tarnished with uh, the same brush by the leader of of the country, the Taoiseach said he was sorry and that he would withdraw the comments and indeed Leo Vradker did exactly that yesterday.
7: Uh, I made some uh, remarks in relation to sinning priests this time last week on leaders' questions. Uh, they caused offence to people that I never intended to offend. Uh, I wish to apologise uh, to anyone whom I, whom I offended, including the deputy, uh, and to withdraw the remarks.
4: There you go, that's uh, the Taoiseach. Leo Vradker, putting uh, the record straight in the doll yesterday before TDs go on their holidays today.
8: Lucky them. <laughs> Carmel wasn't touched. She was listening into your interview with Joe Healy from the Irish Farmers Association, and she says. Buy Irish support the farmers? The farmers are the backbone of Ireland. Okay. Uh, Bernadette, on the same topic, wonders, do the farmers in Ireland ever stop complaining? They're always complaining about something, Michael. I'm actually surprised there's any farmers left farming in this country because they make so little money, mm. according to them. <laughs> says okay, Bernadette. so they're complaining
4: <laughs> with reason, she feels. Yeah, <laughs> okay.
8: Mm-hmm. Um, we had Tony from County Louth and Touch and... Tony says, um, farmers were protesting outside government buildings regarding this proposed agreement, but it's hard to see how this government can now resist this agreement when they are about to reappoint Mr. Hogan, the main architect of the agreement. It would simply be a laughable contradiction. I hope Helen Tony. McEntee
4: doesn't hear that. <laughs>
8: well, you are lying in a for the job there, Michael. <laughs> well, I,
4: I don't know. Uh, President-elect von der Leyen says uh, she wants yes, two nominations. Right. One of them should be a woman and I suppose uh, there's a few people who come to mind. Mairead McGuinness comes to mind. Uh, so does Helen McEntee. And I just uh, have focused on that because the minister was with us this morning. You
8: see, I hate this thing. One of them should be a woman. Mm should it not just be whoever is the best? And I'm not saying Mm. that Helen McEntee for one minute wouldn't be the best, but I'm just Mm. saying, should it be gender or should it be the best person for the job?
4: Yeah, well, I suppose that's uh, the eternal debate, it would seem, uh, at this stage. Unfortunately, it probably should be a question of gender and promoting women into these roles because we have uh, a cultural History whereby all of these roles have been dominated by men, and unless you take some sort of action mm. uh, to change the balance, balance you're going to continue yes. with that forever and a day. It seems
8: right. Mm-hmm. Well, look, we'll finish on that one from Tony.
4: Okay, thanks, Tony. Thanks, Marie. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight.
5: Michael Reed on LMFM
4: Now let's get back to Brexit. Paddy Malone is somebody who watches this as close, if not closer, than most. Paddy, as you know, is uh, the PRO for uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Dundalk. And uh, a very good morning to you, Paddy, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, there's no doubt there's been a, a change in the language from government uh, this week. Has anything else changed, do you think?
1: I think there's a realisation that this is going to happen. Uh, I think the fact that both Conservative candidates are hell-bent on 31st of October, they're leaving, um, even if is we were more circumspect, means that we've got to plan and businesses have got to wake up to this re- this challenge. Um, so I think, yeah, I'm, I'm noticing it in my own practice as an accountant. I'm getting more and more phone calls coming in. The Chamber is also getting more people ringing up and saying, you know, what do we do next? And there is advice. The government issued a 117-page document uh, two days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it is how great we are and what we've done. And, and they do deserve some credit for it. But there is the message, there is a lot more to do. And that applies both to government and also more particularly to every business that's in Dundalk and every business in County Louth. Um, because everybody is touched by this in a business way.
4: I wish I had five Deutschmarks for every time I'd asked you over the last uh, three years uh, what do you think is going to happen next. Uh, But uh, unfortunately, there's no Deutschmarks left in uh, the world. Uh, Do you think uh, that uh, we're going to see a hard Brexit or are we going to see a general election in the United Kingdom?
1: I think we could well see both. I think the problem with it, we've got to plan for a hard Brexit at this stage. I don't want to say it. But I think, from a business point of view, we've got to get that message out. And I've been at Intertrade seminars where they brief people like myself to go out and advise people, and with the Leo office in Dundalk, and both organisations are saying businesses can't afford not to be beefing up themselves up. So I think there's the anticipation. It's going to be hard. If it doesn't work out, well then you know at least it's better safe than sorry. Um, But I think the message is. Um, there is going to be serious trouble. I, I, if I'm looking at the UK, I don't know how the hell it's going to even get through the UK. Um, I mean, if Boris Johnson's talking about locking the doors of Parliament and not allowing Parliament to, to, to do anything, mm. I mean, how ludicrous can we get to a situation where the, the prospective Prime Minister of England is actually talking about doing a coup d'etat? I mean, it's crazy. Um, but that's what we're moving towards. And you know, businesses have to live in the real world, and we have to plan and we have to do something about it. So my message is very simple. Intertrade, Enterprise Ireland, the Leo, they all have videos up telling people what to do, but there are a couple of reasonably straightforward steps. The, to, to register with the revenue is probably the simplest and most straightforward. It takes about two minutes online, and 40,000 people haven't done it. Why wow. have not done?
4: It. Do they not believe that there's? I a-
1: think I think some of them think. Oh God, how long is it going to take me to fill in this form? Trust me, it's two minutes and it's reasonably straightforward. And you don't need you don't need to be an accountant to do it. Although I would advise people that's only the first step. You've got a lot more to do after that. But at least get the first step done, please. And revenue are now going out and knocking on doors and being nice. Should they um,
4: ha- not ha- have done that before now?
1: Yes, it's a simple answer. I think, I think we've been lax. I think every business has been lax. We had a mad scramble after St. Patrick's Day. It, it was the two weeks up to the 31st of March, mm-hmm. not, even the, not even the month of March. It was like watching people cram for an exam, be it the mm-hmm. junior cert, the leaving cert, or something more serious. Um, you You can't cram in the last two weeks. We all know that. We all tell our kids.
4: But why? Why would you need to cram when you're being told it's not going to happen? We've been told there will be no hard border. We can't countenance a hard border.
1: Yeah, but common sense tells you that if we are the if we are the end of the European Union, mm. the European Union is going to insist on us being the end properly. We cannot be. But if the
4: if, government says I, we I, can't, well,
1: the government can can wish and I'm not being blunt about it, or I am being blunt about it, mm-hmm. the government can wish that this isn't going to happen. It is going to happen. I mean, the unfortunate thing is the government has done a fair amount of planning on the basis that common sense would be, pr- prevail in Whitehall. And as Paddy Matthews of Matthews Coaches keeps saying to me, the problem with common sense is, Paddy, it's not too common. And I think it's a very rare thing in Whitehall. So, you know, we can wish that these mm-hmm. things weren't going to happen, what they are. And I was listening to somebody in the logistics side talking about you know, the government's statement that they're not going to have border checks. They're going to have to have them somewhere. Mm. And it may not be in Carrick but it could be in, in Dundalk and then they can say that it's not on the border, that it's 10 miles back. But it's still going to be there. I mean, we've got to work on that basis. I don't want to be a pessimist but I've got to be a realist and I've got a plan for it and one of the things I mean I had a well we
4: could do a deal couldn't we without the backstop
1: what deal either, Britain, either Northern Ireland is a functioning part of the European Customs Union mm. and, the Europe and, and the single market
4: yeah, no, well oh, we've two right. years we, we, we've two years to sort it out under the future relationships as agreement, long, which will long, be negotiated uh, after with the withdrawal as long agreement.
1: As, the, as long as the withdrawal agreement is mm. accepted. But if mm. the withdrawal agreement isn't accepted, then the protocol.
4: But the withdrawal agreement would be accepted if we removed the backstop. If we removed the backstop, yeah. there wouldn't be a need for a border. And, and, so should and, and, we get and, to and, the. I don't know what the, 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 the legal requirement I, is on you this. I, but it,
1: uh, you and I, as Irishmen who no. know our history, know. How well you can trust the
4: British? Okay, but uh, I, I mean, that's wh- the, why, why that's should the we have it?
1: Why you should we? Why, why,
4: down. Yeah, I, yeah, but but I mean, what we're talking about here is putting a, a guarantee in place to stop something from happening, but that guarantee could result in it happening.
1: Yeah, we, unfortunately, we're, it's a rock in a hard place, mm. and that's what we're looking well, at. There,
4: well, well, there's there's two alternative. Options. One is to remove the backs up and let the British win out in this argument, and the other is that the British cave in and they call the thing off, at least temporarily, and go for another referendum or a general election or both.
1: I don't think you can get the British to come back with good faith and negotiate properly if you did say, well, we'll cancel it. The government has spent three years, and I can remember when the government announced back in June mm. 16 that they announced that they would do this and that they would get the EU to support us and a lot of people saying to Andy Kenny, at the end of the day Andy, when push comes to shove, Mercedes cars will be far more important than Irish butter and so far the European Union has proved to be solid um, I'm not suggesting for one minute that there has to be wriggle room to allow the new Prime Minister mm. um, not to have some win.
4: Yeah well I mean you can't, you well, can't believe that the European Union is solid uh, but you can't take that at face value until we get into November or whenever the united kingdom leaves uh, because uh, their actions is what's important and we won't know how they act till we get to that time
1: yes but we can we can we can look at the moment and all we can do is is take things at face value and rely on what they're telling us and presumably in private it's the same information mm. that's going out
4: do you think there's a possibility that we will leave the European Union. I mean, Simon yep. Coveney has raised this as an issue that we can't be dragged out of the European Union. If we don't want a border on this island, there's many reasons that we don't want a border on this island, apart from the economic reasons, the free trade, the free movement, all that sort of stuff. Uh, there's the peace on the island and it may be too great a price to pay, because I think everybody accepts at this stage, you put a border in place, it becomes a target, and you compromise the whole peace process. So if we say no border, and Europe says as well you 're either in or you 're out uh, if you 're in you have to have a border because your border is the french border it 's the german border uh, it 's uh, the spanish border. call it what you will but it 's european border no border you 're not in
1: yeah and that 's the problem for where we are, and what we have done consistently since one thousand nine hundred and seventy nine has made our decision that we are Europeans. When we broke with Sterling in 1979, that was the first real statement of independence that we had made since 1921, and hmm. um, possibly the Constitution, maybe in '37. But that was the first economic statement of independence. But is that the and, question and that and we're going you to ask look, ourselves? If you look at where we are now hmm. compared to where we were in 1979. Yeah. It's a dramatic difference.
4: But Paddy, will it come down to us asking ourselves: Do we want to be Europeans in a country at war with itself, or do we want? To live in an independent country at peace,
1: but Europe's not at war with
4: itself. No, it, that that we'd compromise the peace process, that the troubles would start all over again by well, staying by staying by staying in Europe by staying in Europe and having a border. In other words, so, yeah,
1: I I I know the point you're making, hmm. and, and and you know that's why I'm saying, look, I, I I've been at SDIP, Alliance Party and other places since I was. Since, since the 1970s, I have been going up to the north to try and get peace. And I know a lot of other people have been doing it quietly without any publicity or anything else. And a huge amount of effort has gone into this to try and get the peace process. And you look on today mm. and you look at, the, at, the, at the, the troubles, well, the potential trouble that's going to arise tomorrow yeah. and tonight with bonfires and all the rest of it. Mm. We don't need to be reminded that we're not that far removed
4: from that yeah, and the young light and the bonfires don't remember the troubles let alone the peace process no they've no conception of and, what and, and a lot of was people, like my, my kids
1: thankfully yeah. look at me and think that I'm describing history when I talk about what happened here in the 1980s I, I,
4: I think that you're, you're doing well if they think it's history because a, a lot of kids thinks, they think it's science fiction yeah. Yeah. No, no, I mean they really, have, don't, no they really they have no conception. They don't I mean, believe it. They think you're exaggerating. Yeah, it. I
1: was talking to somebody yesterday mm. about, about Bobby Sands and about the whole, you know, the, the, mm. the hunger strike and and the funeral and the fact that the dock closed down for the day of his funeral mm. and the the air of uncomfortable would be too too mild a word for it at the time. And I can remember as I I just qualified as a chartered accountant just mm. to come back to the dock and it was a. It was not a happy experience for mm. anybody.
4: And do you remember that? Do you remember the, the way one event took the public mood? Uh, I mean, a, a lot of people in the Republic at the time would have been against the IRA campaign. And a lot of people at that particular moment in time Changed their mind and supported the IRA campaign because they felt that the hunger strikers had been treated uh, uh, appallingly yeah, by look, Margaret Thatcher. we can
1: Hatcher. go back and point at various mm. times in various instances. I mean, the one that would stick most clearly in my mind would have been Bloody Sunday the 30th mm. of, of, yeah, of January. course, yeah, yeah, the big, biggest 72.
4: recruitment uh, event ever yeah. in history and for Martin, the provisional correct yeah.
1: with his description mm. of that. Mm. So we can point to, And what we've got to do, and what politicians have got to do on this side of the border, and I think all political parties, Michael Martin, Sinn Féin, Fine Gael, everybody, the Labour Party, all the organisations, have been trying to be supportive of the government and, and, and to try and make sure this doesn't happen. Now, the problem we have is this is a problem not of our making. And the the, the other issue is that Parliament looks like as if it's probably a, a pro-Remain Parliament at this stage, funnily enough. And... Um, that Parliament is is either out of step with the general public or the two Conservative leaders are out of
4: step Mm. with... You mean Westminster, of course. Westminster, Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: I Mm. think uh, you're looking at the the situation and saying there is probably a majority in favour of Remain Mm. in in, in Parliament at this stage, in the UK Parliament.
4: Mm. And Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has said uh, if there's an election, he'll campaign to Remain.
1: Yes. And I think if you put his votes and you put the Liberal Democrats' votes together and the soft wing of the Conservative parties, even with the Brexit party and all the rest of it, I think um, you would see a win for, 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 for Remain. Mm. But that, you know, it's in, the, it's in the lap of the gods, and what I am concerned about, as P.R.O. of the Chamber of Commerce, and that's what I talk to you about, mm. I'm talking about what do people do on the ground for economic purposes, and what I'm saying is, you have to prepare for the worst case scenario, that it's going to be a hard border, that we are going to be looking at this situation, Absolutely. and there's yeah. nothing we can mm. do about yeah, it.
4: Yeah, no, no, I mean, I and, and
1: we've got a plan that. for it. Mm. If it doesn't work out, well, there's been money wasted and time wasted, but at least we are safe. If it doesn't work out, then those those plans will become critically important. And what I'm saying is, we've got the summer, mm. get these things done, and what I will be appealing to every business, contact InterTrade, contact the Leo, contact Brexit advisors that know what they're talking about, and go and actually do your research. It's not a huge amount of time but there's, there's good videos on the inter-trade and on Enterprise Ireland to explain what you need to be thinking about. But start addressing the issue. Now, I, I was speaking to somebody mm-hmm. yesterday, uh, uh, Michael. Uh, this is a point that I keep trying to get across to people. And I said to him, any, uh, Have you any Brexit issues? He said, no, Paddy, I don't. Mm. His main supplier gets their goods from Birmingham. Yeah. He has a Brexit problem yeah.
4: and doesn't realise
1: it. And doesn't mm-hmm. realise it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and he said to me, I've never exported in yeah. my life, Paddy. I have no intentions of exporting. Yeah. But I'm sorry, they're selling products that came in from France. with a, and, and I have a, one French company, actually, that I'm just saying it to at the mm. moment. They have, a distribu- they have a distribution agreement with a company in, in Manchester, I think it is, and they cover the UK and Ireland. And I've gone back to the company and said, look, you're going to have to think about that again. You, you, d- 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 Manchester will not be able to service Ireland. Mm and you're going to have to do a separate deal with a distributor in Ireland for your product. You can't be going through the UK outside yeah. uh,
4: the EU. Yeah, or, or like the woman on the news last night, south of the border uh, freighting uh, goods uh, down to Kerry or somewhere, but uh, the truck company uh, if, based in Armagh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 She
1: was making chocolate
4: in the Think about it, prepare for it, uh, and be ready for the worst possible scenario. That's but I- I- if, as you say, Paddy, it's in the lap of the gods perhaps we should pray to God that the British will be going to the polls uh, towards uh, the end of November and there'll be a little bit more breathing space
1: well all we can do is hope that reality will dawn, and maybe maybe the fact that you know uh, the debate the other night through a very good man who was hard working under the bus mm. might show just
4: you we might try throw the other one under the bus down <laughs>
1: You know, but my, yep, you know, mm, Boris Johnson's mm, carelessness with mm, the way he spoke yep, about the prime mm, uh, uh, know, but, but the, the ambassador, ambassador yep, threw mm, him under the mm, bus. Mm. And maybe then people will begin to realise that you know Jeremy's that he, that that he's okay for sound bites. Mm. But leadership is a different matter.
4: Well, time will tell. We'll know uh, come the twenty first of uh, July who will be the next uh, Conservative Party leader and Prime Minister. And uh, I I'll just we'll mention when you
1: mentioned twenty first yeah. of July, twenty sixth yeah. of July, the Leo are actually having a drop in Brexit at the in the in the town hall, so people can go on websites, just see, book an appointment, and come in and talk. But as I said, there are advisors appointed both by Intertrade mm. and by the Leo to give advice on Brexit. Okay. Um,
4: That's the 26th and in please, the town hall.
1: Please every business use that. It is free. I want to stress that. Okay. It is free.
4: Thanks, Paddy. We'll come back on. to you before the 26th. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Paddy Malone Pierrot for Dundalk's Chamber of Commerce.
5: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
4: The HSE has echoed uh, the concerns of uh, the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, about disruption to mental health services as uh, a result of an overtime ban, which is being implemented uh, from today by members of uh, the Psychiatric Nurses Association. Rory Cavanaugh, Industrial Relations Officer with the Psychiatric Nurses Association, joins us now. And good morning to you, Rory, and thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, are your members obligated to work on? overtime?
9: Uh, firstly, good morning, Michael. Uh, no, our members are uh, um, obligated to work their contracted hours, and that, that, that's what they're doing today uh, throughout the country.
4: And do they always work overtime?
9: Well, un- unfortunately, due to the kind of severe um, severe and kind of chronic shortages uh, over the over length and breadth of this country, they, they, you know, they have to work overtime in terms of uh, trying to Fill the real and, and the substantial vacancies that
4: exist, and without that, over time, uh, how much uh, of a uh, uh, service uh, are, are we missing? I, I mean, uh, if you time talk about full time equivalents and so on.
9: Well, they, like to give an example, like some services are working 20 percent uh, below their um, required complement, and we also estimate that there are around seven hundred vacancies in mental health nursing. In, in this country at present, and then to sort of say that we have been engaged to try and to try and uh, to try and kind of bring this to um, a resolution in terms of that the employer would offer substantial solutions to finally address the crisis. Within the last number of weeks, the employer has um, put a recruitment embargo uh, on on recruiting, and 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 I suppose that's ironic in terms of within mental health nursing, like the number of shortages that we have. And we have no dispensation whatsoever in, into that into that recruitment poll.
4: And I, I take it that's come as a, a bit of a surprise to you, given that this is an ongoing dispute, uh, and indeed you were in dispute with uh, the HSE at uh, the time of the INMO dis- dispute uh, with yeah, uh, like, ordinary nurses uh, and midwives.
9: Yeah, and, like we've been we've been engaged with uh, the employer for about five months now in, in terms of trying to come to a resolution. And then in about March, April, or March, April time, the, we received a uh, notification from the employer that they were um, uh, putting it, well, they're calling it a pause, but it, it is not, a, it is a recruitment embargo. Like, to give you an example, we have a quite a substantial number of people who have expressed an interest in a post, who have cleared all necessary hurdles in terms of recruitment, such as references, yeah. and whatever, and they're not given a start date. So they're actually they can't get a start date until the post has been cleared and mm. that post that post has to be cleared up at the highest levels in Dr. Steven's hospital like like for instance I was called yesterday I received a call from one member who is traveling from the east of the or from the the west of the, the the country to the east of the country on six to seven days of fortnight because mm. they are caught up in terms of HPSS, which is the National Recruitment Body, that they can't be given a start date until the post is been Like, And this is for every post in mental health nursing.
4: Well, this is very hard to understand. and uh, I think there's probably been a, a lot of contradictory statements which make it all the harder to understand because you say you're 700 members short or staff short, if you like, uh, that uh, there's an understaffing of up to 20% in some circumstances and that there's a recruitment ban on uh, and that those vacant positions won't be filled because the HSE can't recruit people. On the other hand, we're hearing the HSE can't recruit people and uh, millions of euro 15 million euro uh, for two years in a row went unspent because they couldn't get the staff.
9: Yeah, you're right there in terms of trying to get the staff, but I suppose we're looking for the HSE to offer kind of solutions to, to address the crisis in, in, in recruitment and retention. Like, even trying trying to kind of stand still, you would need those 700 numbers, but, like, we have a number of kind of developments in terms of specialist practice and that, so that would actually push the ceiling above 700. So, like, it, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult environment to give the employer that in terms of recruiting people, but, like, they have to be realistic in in offering in offering, um, you know, I suppose, packages mm-hmm. to nurses. Like, if we, if we were to look at the minute, you know, around May, May June of each year, the, the the employer will write out to every nurse who is going to graduate in September of this year and will be offering them offering them a post where the vacancies occur. To date, I have not seen this letter from the employer nationally. And if you look at actually what is trying to fill these posts in the meantime, it, it, it's a very costly agency in overtime.
4: Okay, well, undoubtedly it's the patients who are suffering if the service is understaffed. Uh, there will be fewer staff available if overtime isn't being worked when it's worked to the extent uh, that it currently is. And undoubtedly we'll be hearing more about uh, this dispute now that it is escalating in the coming days and weeks for that matter. Rory, we leave there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Rory Cavanaugh is an industrial relations officer for the Psychiatric Nurses Association.
2: Michael Reed on LMFM
4: Brian Stack was uh, the Chief Prison Officer in Portlaoise in 1983 when he was shot by the IRA. He died 18 months later. Earlier this morning I asked his son Austin if an apology from uh, the Guard Commissioner when he met the family yesterday paved the way for a state apology now and indeed an independent inquiry and if he expected the Taoiseach to be asked if that's what would happen today?
3: Um, well, I hope the t will be asked about it. I know that um, Brendan Howland, the Labour leader, has echoed my calls for uh, the state to make a, uh, an apology. Uh, and I, I would be surprised, to be honest, if uh, the t didn't take the opportunity... Uh, to apologise on behalf of the state, and um, because we have a, a, a formal apology now from Ngāti Shiuakana, and you know they mm. are the, the, an arm of the state, so it's not a great leap to expect that the Taoiseach would follow suit.
4: I'm sure that was very important for all of uh, the family you met, Commissioner Harris, with your two brothers and your mother. How did your mother feel after the meeting?
3: And um, to be, to be cr- brutally honest, I think she was actually very, very happy. Um, it, it, it's uh, my mother is a very it's a very private woman and you know she has carried this for a long time and um, you know she's not a woman that likes the limelight and you know I, I could see in her yesterday that there was a great lift a great weight lifted off her shoulders with that apology because you know we we have been battling this for thirty six years and you know sometimes you, you you feel an uphill battle you go into meetings mm. uh, you know at certain times with Gardy and and we we would tell them stuff and they would rubbish it and tell us it yeah. wasn't true and then a couple of months later, they would come back and say, you know, you were actually right. You know, we had been battling to and fro like that for a long number sure. of years, and we worked not in- We didn't want to put that stuff in the media, Michael, because Mm. we wanted the Gardaí, we had trust in the Gardaí and we wanted the Gardaí to do their job. And do you
4: think the Commissioner recognised the shortcomings in the police investigation because your contention is uh, that there were individuals uh, who should have been suspects who weren't interviewed or might have had information and weren't interviewed, uh, that evidence went missing and that the Gardaí had information that they didn't act on?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, And the Commissioner has acknowledged that. Um, the Commissioner has acknowledged all of that and you know that's why I'm looking for this independent review by an outside uh, expert in policing from outside the state because you know the Commissioner wasn't able to give us answers as to why these things happened and I I think it's now incumbent on the the, the Commissioner and the the Minister for Justice to allow this to happen. The Commissioner has actually said he has um, no issue with this happening. Uh, He he has no great issue with it and he's open to it. Mm. Um, And I I think that's very forthright of the Commissioner to actually acknowledge that and to, to be prepared to be open about that.
4: OK, and your father was shot in Dublin on the South Circular Road outside of uh, the National Stadium in 1983. At the time, he was the chief prison officer in Leash Prison. Uh, he was shot by the IRA. You know that. It's been confirmed to you by the IRA. Why do you think Brian Stack was a target?
3: Um, my, th- my father was a target, quite simply, because he was... Um, the chief officer in Port Leash Prison, he was doing his job. Uh, he was the head of security. The IRA at the time were trying to pull off a, a double uh, publicity coup by having a break out in Port Leash and a breakout out in mm. uh, the Mays Prison in Northern Ireland. Uh, they succeeded in the Mays Prison one. Um, the but he, problem,
4: he was the only prison officer, was he not, that was killed in the Republic?
3: Yes, yeah. Right. He was. Uh, uh,
4: and was it because he was a prison officer? Uh, because the IRA had political status at uh, the time in Leash Prison uh, and would have divided up into different battalions in the prison and would have had a line of command and all of that sort of thing and would have been treated as political prisoners. Uh, so were prison officers uh, legitimate in the eyes of the IRA at the time, as you remember?
3: Um, the At the time, um, the... The IRA's Green Book uh, would have stated that they ha- they could not engage or attack um, security forces or state forces in the Republic of Ireland. That- that's part of the IRA rules. And that is one of the reasons why the IRA were sort of looked into admit mm. what they did at the time. Uh, Hawaii, they and they have out.
4: admitted it since. They um, have admitted um, it. But it they since. said it wasn't sanctioned, that this was some yeah. members of the IRA who were acting on their own bat, if you like.
3: Yeah, Yeah, that's how they're getting around the fact that... Um, the IRA's own rules and regulations prohibited them from acting against um, security personnel Mm -hmm. down south. Um, The the facts of the matter remain, Michael, that uh, they were trying to... My father was too good at his job. Mm -hmm. He uh, was getting uh, locks changed on gates um, every uh, once a month, particular gates. He he was too good for the IRA.
4: Is it true to say that the IRA prisoners hated your father?
3: Um, Michael, I I have no uh, idea about that because, you know, I was 14 years of age at the time, but what I would say is uh, that my father, I know from people Mm -hmm. that worked there at the time, and I've also known from prisoners that were in Port Leash at the time that I've met in my own career, uh, would have told me that my father was an extremely fair man and that uh, prisoners actually like dealing with him because he was straight up
4: with them. OK, well the reason I'm asking you is uh, well twofold I suppose, one is uh, I believe he was hated by prisoners in Port Leash at the time uh, and that's something that I, I've heard, uh, but uh, if that is uh, the case, uh, well then perhaps he was targeted for personal reasons uh, and against the rules of the IRA as you've outlined to us, uh, a prison officer shouldn't have been the target of uh, an IRA execution. Your father was shot in the neck by a member of the IRA who escaped on a, a motorbike, which was driven by another member of the IRA, and they were ordered to do so by a third member of the IRA.
3: Uh, well, my information is that there was a lot more people involved in it than that, Michael. Um, this was this was a, a, a very well organised attack. There was also a car that drove the the two individuals out of Dublin afterwards. The motorbike was stolen. Uh, the, uh, stolen a month beforehand hmm. um, there was a clean up job done uh, you know, so th- th- this wasn't, uh, Michael, this was a an extremely well organised and well orchestrated attack
4: And you know uh, it was the IRA because the IRA tol- admitted, told yeah. you uh, Remind us uh, how it came about that the IRA told you it was members of the IRA that shot your father which uh, culminated in his death
3: Um uh, due to the, the the poor nature of the, the police investigation, uh, I, I reached out to Sinn Féin. I reached out to Gerry Adams. Uh, now, again, I, I, for a long number of, of months, I had been asking him to meet with me, and Gerry Adams wasn't prepared to meet with me. And um, I eventually um, got a meeting after I called out some stuff that um, the local Sinn Féin TV here in Leash uh, had said in the media. And um, I got a meeting with... with Deputy Adams and uh, I explained to him what I was looking for. I explained that all I wanted was an admission um, and Deputy Adams organised for myself my brother to go meet with an individual who he described as a personal friend uh, who was an IRA this individual said he was had a senior uh, role within the IRA, senior leadership role in the IRA at the time of the ceasefire.
4: Okay but just just backtrack a a little bit because you you met Jerry Adams in Dundalk was it?
3: We met Jerry Adams in. Uh, we were brought. We were brought by Jerry uh, Adams uh, parliamentary assistant to uh, uh, Drogheda, and there we met Jerry mm. Adams in Drogheda, and we were brought uh, up the Cooley Mountains.
4: You believe it was the Cooley Mountains, uh, but yeah. it was a blacked-out van. Uh.
3: Uh, no, we were brought up about halfway up the Cooley Mountains, and then transferred into a blacked-out van.
4: Right. Okay. And where you ended up after that, uh, God knows, I suppose.
3: Yeah. Well, it was a, a short journey of about ten minutes.
4: Uh, and then you met this man. Uh, can you identify that man, or would you be able to identify that man again? I, absolutely, yeah. Mm, okay. Uh, and he represented the IRA and was a good friend of Gerry Adams. Yes, and, and he,
3: he told us that he had actually spoken with the people that uh, murdered my dad. Mm.
4: And as a result of all of that, uh, you've called on Sinn Féin uh, to take further action.
3: Again, I'm asking, you know, the new leadership of Sinn Féin that if they would, you know, there are, I mean, Sinn Féin have been very uh, vociferous in the last uh, couple of months in particular around legacy issues, particularly around ones that, uh, you know, Ballymorphie, and and rightly so, and I I, I would uh, say quite clearly to anybody, that where uh, people were killed, where deaths occurred, and where there hasn't been justice, on every side, that Everybody is entitled to justice. Everybody's entitled to answers. Uh, But the problem I have with the the, the Sinn Féin leadership is that they they seem to be uh, advocating on one side, and when it comes to advocating for atrocities committed within the wider uh, provisional movement, they're less reluctant to help people.
4: Right. This IRA man uh, confirmed to you that uh, your father was shot by the IRA in what was uh, 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 an action that was not sanctioned. Uh, Did he identify the people who were involved to you?
3: Uh, Well, the first thing is he he stated it wasn't sanctioned, and I challenged him on that at the meeting, and I challenged uh, Deputy Adams on that at the meeting. My belief is it was sanctioned. I know who sanctioned that uh, Mm. operation, and it was sanctioned at a very high level within the IRA.
4: But did he identify any of the individuals involved?
3: No, he did not know.
4: OK, and this IRA commander or senior ranking IRA member, uh, as he undoubtedly was, is a good friend of Gerry Adams. Have you asked Gerry Adams if he got the names of the individuals who were involved from this IRA man?
3: Uh, what I did was I asked um, if when when Deputy Adams put um, false uh, stuff into the media and to the Gardaí in relation to our meetings, I asked Deputy Adams at that stage uh, in, in the public arena to go with the information that he had to on Gardaí Khan and Deputy Adams hasn't done that
4: mm. And Jerry Adams has said he's told us that he, he doesn't have any more information on uh, the shooting of your father than that he has given to the authorities He gave four names to the authorities uh, four names he said he received from you
3: yeah, and that's where a bone of contention between me and Deputy Adams, because uh, I did not uh, speak with Deputy Adams and give him names at all.
4: Have you me- met with Jerry Adams since then? Because uh, that was uh, almost six years ago, was it?
3: Yeah, no, I haven't met with Deputy Adams since then.
4: Do you wish to meet with him again?
3: I am always open to meeting people if they deal with me honestly. I, I have no difficulty in meeting with people once uh, w- w- it's, it's done in a very honest way. And I felt that the last time uh, Deputy Adams was maybe trying to use the family for some political gain and that he, he he broke the concept. We had a very confidential arrangement that nothing that was said at those meetings uh, was to be disclosed to anyone. I found that Deputy Adams wrote a letter to the Guarded Commissioner uh, stating incorrectly that I gave him four names, uh, which... He, that broke the confidence of the meetings that we had, but it also, he, he gave false information to the to the Gardaí. Uh, so, from my perspective, um, Jerry Adams, I, while well, I wouldn't rule out meeting with the man again, he has a lot of work to do to convince me that I could trust him.
4: Okay, and I, I think you've told us in the past, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've told us in the past that it's your belief that some of the people who were involved in the shooting of your father, which resulted in his demise, we're members of the IRA and are now members of Sinn Féin. Uh, do you wish to meet with Mary Lou MacDonald? And do you wish for Sinn Féin to support this independent inquiry that you're looking to be held?
3: Um, well, I believe that Sinn Féin should should support any inquiry They, to, to be honest with you, Michael, Sinn Féin should uh, support the current ongoing Garda investigation. Uh, that will be a major step. Um, because they, they have prevaricated on that in in a very real way, particularly their former leader, Deputy Adams. Um, and I think the first step will be that uh, Sinn Féin should tell their members quite clearly, uh, anyone that a member of Sinn Féin, that was a member of the IRA, that had anything to do with this, that they need at this stage, uh, to go to Angarda Shea Corner with whatever information they have. And Michael, I'll be mm-hmm. very clear, the family are not looking for a pound of flesh here. Yep. We're not looking for anybody to do jail time. We just want people to actually be honest and to actually you know, justice to us will be full disclosure and full The the taking of responsibility by the people that did
4: this. Okay, well, the doll will go into recess today for the summer holidays, but I imagine that this is one of the issues uh, that will be raised on the last day in this term, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it again tomorrow. We leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you for joining us today, Austin Stack. Thank you, Michael. And God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye bye
3: the michael reed show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on lmfm to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie this
9: is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on that's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working the hvac is humming and his facility shines